Well, for those that are visiting Sovereign Grace, new to Sovereign Grace, we are presently doing a series on Acts. It's called The Unstoppable Gospel. And so I'd be grateful if you've got a Bible, let's turn in it to Acts chapter 6, please. We're going to be looking at quite a long text today from chapter 6 verse 8 through to the end of chapter 7. And so I'm going to pray before we get into this together. Lord, you are a speaking God. You love to communicate with your people. You love to communicate with all those who you've made. And Lord, I pray, would you speak to us then today? Your word is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, it can sear our hearts in a moment. And so Lord, I pray that that would be the effect of the preached word today. That you would minister to us. Lord, whatever our circumstance whatever our needs, whatever our situations of each individual in this room in this moment that walked through the door today, whatever the reason for walking in, whether it be because we're part of the church, because we're visiting, because we're here for the dedications, Lord, you say that in your word you are behind all things. And so would we pause today and be addressed by you? In Jesus' name, amen. For me, I grew up in England. I grew up in Spalding, in Lincolnshire, in England. And growing up in Spalding was an interesting experience. And it was an interesting experience because Spalding is very small. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings and you see the Shire, that's where I lived. It was very much like that. And so growing up there, you know, had some good things about it. It was out in the country. It was a small town. I didn't actually move to a city until I was 18. Um, and there was just some neat things about living there. So we never locked our doors. Nothing ever got stolen. There wasn't any need. Now and again, you would find friends and wider family in the lounge when you got up in the morning for breakfast. But that was the way it was. We just lived in this sort of very small community. But one of the downsides of growing up in Spalding in Lincolnshire is I was bored out of my skull. There just wasn't a lot to do. And so I specialized in movies. So if if ever I'm in Mastermind, you will see me do 80s movies because that's my speciality. Back to the Future, love it. Bring it on. You know, all those different movies, BMX Bandits, personal favorite. Top Gun is actually on soon. Absolute favorite. You know, all those eras, what I completely grew up on and knew them all, often word for word. I also had a Spectrum 48K, a genius computer. My son has an Xbox and I tried to explain him that the graphics were a little different 20 years ago. They were stick men. We're, we're running around the screen going, and, you, and we used to just think, this is amazing. You know, and you'd press play on the, on the tape recorder and it would take 10 minutes. And then we'd go, error, 0.01. And you're sickos. You know, you don't have that anymore. But back in my day, you certainly did. But even then, it was quite boring. So we spent a lot of our time outside. And I wanted to show you a picture today of one of my favorite places that I used to go, which was the local riverbank. And there it was. So that was just north of our house where we grew up. As you can see, it's completely flat. It's all farming communities. There's not a lot there apart from, apart from that. But me and my brother used to go up the riverbank all the time. There was actually five rivers that all came together in the same place. And we used to go up the riverbank. Sometimes we went fishing. Um, because what else do you do when you've got a few worms in the garden and a a rod? So we used to go fishing. But one of the main things we used to do was go up to this riverbank, and right here where it's taken, there's actually some lock gates, and we used to throw stones. That was legend, and particularly when you're like 11 and 8. So this was just so much fun. 
And so we started to build a game around who could make the biggest ripples. And because it being so clear all the time and so flat, you, these ripples would go for miles. And so we, we started to throw in small stones. We'd get bigger stones. Then we'd get even bigger stones. Once, we actually, there's actually a road to the left. We actually went to the road and we managed to kick off a whole section of tarmac. And we both put it in and... And we whacked it. I mean, if we'd fallen in as well, it would have been awful. But we whacked in this massive piece of tarmac and the, and the splash came up above us. And then the ripples just went on and on and on. And we used to love that. We used to love throwing in stones and seeing these ripples go forward. Well, the reason why I mentioned that illustration to show you that picture is because today I think we have a story in the book of Acts, which is all about the stones that started a tsunami. The stones that were thrown at a man named Stephen that ultimately would start the ripples of the gospel going forward in a mighty way as they're still going forward today from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so as we look at this passage today, I've really just got two points. It's not a complicated message. First of all, I want us to look at the story itself. It runs from Acts 6 verse 8 through to 760. And there's three parts to it, three scenes, if you will, of the story that I want us to look at. And then just in closing, I want us to look at the story's implications. If this is true, then what difference does that make to our lives today here in Sydney 2,000 years on? Because I believe it makes great differences. So I want us to be engaged by that. So let's look first of all then at the story itself. The main character in this story is a dude called Stephen. Stephen is introduced to us in chapter 6, verse 5. And the background to that whole section, for those of you that are new here, is that the the church in Jerusalem is really growing. Within a matter of weeks, there are 10,000 people. And that's really neat. But for a pastor, that causes a few challenges. And there's a few people in the church starting to kick off with, you know, who's going to look after the Greek-speaking widows? They're getting left out. No one can understand what they're saying. So they're getting left out. And so the apostles gather to the church together and they say, you know what, we need to find seven guys and that can really give themselves to caring for the the needy and for the widows. And Stephen is one of those guys that is chosen in that moment. Chapter 6, verse 5, Stephen is chosen and he is introduced to us as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he's been set apart by this church to care for the widows and care care for the needy among them. You know, Stephen is quite a guy. He loves the Lord. He he loves the scriptures. He gives himself to the word. That's why he's such a man of faith. And he gives himself in prayer. That's why he's such a man of the Holy Spirit. But in essence, he's just a guy like us. As a sovereign grace, the truth is for us, he could be a man very easily that is just sitting amongst us. He's a Robert or a Yui or a Riley. Or a Simon. For sure, he's a man who loves the Lord and he, he puts his hand up to serve in the church. But he's not a super apostle. He's not giving himself to the preaching and teaching like the disciples were. No, he's just going to give himself to the church. And seek to serve the church and care for the widows. It's not a grand, huge position where everybody's going, check it out, Steve. That's no, just a guy who loves the Lord. And that's important because this story will never sing out to us if we see him as some superhuman Christian. He's a regular guy who loves Jesus with all his heart. Well, as he starts to serve the widows and starts to serve those who are in need, he begins to catch the eye of those who hate Christianity. 
of those who hate what Christ stood for and anybody who now seeks to follow him. And that brings us to scene one, where Stephen is opposed. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 8 through to 15. This is what happens. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen, a regular guy in the church, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, is giving himself to serve the needs of the widows. He's giving himself to caring for the flock. And he's doing a good job of it. But then some dudes who are from the local synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, the local one that would be Greek-speaking, which Stephen is himself, a Hellenist, they start to rally on Stephen. They don't like what Stephen is doing. It's hard enough being a Greek Jew as it is without some lunatic starting to tell people about Jesus. They start to rally on him and they start to question him, rising up against him and disputing with him. They're really asking him to shut up. Stop telling people about Jesus. It's unhelpful. Well, Stephen responds with great wisdom and wonderful spirit, which they can't withstand. They can't change his opinions. They can't change his mind. This guy loves the Lord. That's why it says that his face shone like a face of an angel. It's just a guy that so loves Jesus that you could see it in his face. But these guys hated that, that rose up against Stephen. And so they instigate against him false witnesses, false witnesses that start to make all sorts of spin and claims on what Stephen isn't saying, but they start to say that he is. And as a result, Stephen gets dragged then before the Sanhedrin. He's arrested and he stands before the Sanhedrin. Now, if you've been following along in Acts you will realize that this is a familiar scene. Somebody getting dragged before the Sanhedrin. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that for the first time with Peter and John? The Sanhedrin, a 71-member council. They would gather in the temple, they would get all their paraphernalia on every morning, they would stand there and really seek to intimidate those that they were interviewing. All 71 of them, Sadducees, Pharisees, the high priestly family, And on this day, they began to interview Stephen. And they began to interview him in a desire to intimidate him. In Acts chapter 4, they interviewed Peter and John. In Acts chapter 5, they interviewed the entirety of the apostles. There is now in Acts chapter 6, the distinct smell of martyrdom in the air. They'd already warned Peter and John, you must not speak of Jesus anymore. They were going to kill the apostles, but one of them stood up within them and said, we can't do this. If it's of the Lord, we won't be able to stand against it. If it's of man, it'll fizzle out. But in Acts chapter 6, you can't help but perceive that they've had enough of waiting. 
They've had enough of these people telling everybody else about Jesus and seeing the effect that that's having in Jerusalem. And so at the start of chapter 7, this great Sanhedrin put this regular guy from a local church in the middle of them and asked him a question and called him to account. And in chapter 7, this is what Stephen says in response. It's a long section, and so at different times this week, I wondered, well, maybe I won't read it. But then I really felt addressed by the Lord, that this is the Lord addressing us. This is a speech, not just a moment in history. This is God, in effect, speaking through Stephen. And so let's read it together, and let's concentrate on what Stephen's saying, because my, he says some wonderful stuff. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so, Stephen? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the Lord for the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? This retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what he, what he has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made and worshipped, and I will send you into exile, exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in the house made by hands as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Listen, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. You know, as I read that speech and I I imagine that scene of this regular guy from church standing 
before the might of the Sanhedrin, knowing that they had the power to seriously punish him. I just think, wow. You know, for a start, this guy clearly knew the word of God, didn't he? He's a regular guy in the church, but he clearly knew the word of God because it's coming out of him now, left, right, and center. He's giving an account for what he believes very clearly and very loudly. He's clearly been a man who has studied God's word. When it says that the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, Stephen's clearly been really listening up. Because he's standing there, he's telling them all about it. He's telling them about their history. He's telling them about what God has done. But the thing that stands out about Stephen for me, the thing that stands out about this speech to me, is there's no doubt that in this moment, Stephen is not really giving a defense. He's seeking to win them to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's standing there, in effect, preaching to the Sanhedrin as I'm preaching to you now. He's seeking to win them to Christ and him crucified. And that's his motive. And the way he does it then is so clever. In one sense, you can tell that he's not a usual preacher because he goes round in circles on some of his points. But nonetheless, he makes three clear points. And each of those points, is, is uh, the point of each of those points is he's seeking to undermine a false understanding of Jewish tradition. The Jews believed that God accepted them, that God blessed them, that they were privileged because of the temple, because of the land, and because of their heritage. And what Stephen is doing in this clever speech is saying, oh, that's not enough. Temple, it's great, not enough. Land, really helpful. Not enough. Heritage? Yeah, really helpful. Not enough. He's trying to point them to Jesus being enough. He's trying to help them see that you've built your lives on false foundations, but Jesus is the one you need to rely on. Let me explain that to you clearly so you can see it. Because Stephen knows that those things aren't enough, and he knows that they need Christ. So one by one, he seeks to knock these false foundations over. In verse 2 through verse 36 then, he takes on the land. And that's what that's all about. I know there's a lot of words in there, but ultimately he's talking to them about the land. The Jews believed, or certainly the Sanhedrin would have believed, that surely God accepts them and blesses them because of the land in which they live. I mean, this is like the Holy Land, right? Special. By putting my feet there, I'm special. And Stephen explains to them over 35 verses, you know what, guys? Um, Now that's not enough. The land was never enough. And he very skillfully then goes after them. He talks to them about Abraham and Jacob and the patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob and Moses. And he seeks to give the Sanhedrin examples of how God has blessed people well outside of the land. How God's ministered to people, moved on people way outside of this holy land that they think they're special because of. And so he explains to them that God revealed himself and blessed Abraham when he was outside of the land. How God had blessed their ancestors through Joseph in Egypt, a place that is well outside the land. How God had met with Moses and took care of Moses and took care of his people through Moses years earlier, well outside of the land. And that God had even commissioned Moses through a burning bush by Mount Sinai, a place well outside of the land. And as God encounters Moses through the burning bush, he says, Moses, take off your sandals. Why? 
Because you're standing on holy ground. He's seeking to explain to this Sanhedrin, you think the land means that you're special before God. You think the land is something that God says, I'm so impressed with you. Welcome home, my children, because of the feet on which you're, because of where you're standing. And Stephen explains to them, it's not about where you live. Because the whole world is the Lord's. And God blesses people well outside of the land too. The land isn't enough. You need Jesus. He then talks about the temple in verses 44 through 50. See, there was this Jewish notion that God is surely with us because we have the temple. And the temple was pretty impressive. I mean, the Sydney Opera House is impressive. And when I first arrived here and you see the the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, you think, this is impressive. But the temple in Jerusalem was big time impressive. I mean, this thing was huge. And at this era, 2,000 years ago, this was an astonishing piece of architecture. Whole parts of the temple were were gold-plated. This thing would dazzle in the light. They would have incredibly high walls. And they were impressed with it. I mean, the Jews had built it. They were where my ancestors have built this. This is pretty darn good. And the temple stood right in the middle of their city, in the middle, in effect, in their nation, of their heritage, of their culture, of their lifestyles. You couldn't go outside of your house in Jerusalem and not be looking at the temple. It was so huge. It was, by very nature, impressive. And the Jews were impressed with it. And their working assumption is, if we're impressed with it, God must be impressed with it as well. How kind of us to build God. Such a great house. He must look down on us and go, Oh my goodness, aren't you clever? Well, oh, if I could have picked a home, I would have picked this one. You know, this is what they're thinking. God must be thinking. Surely God accepts us. He counts us as privileged. Because look at what we built him. We built him a house. Check it out. And so Stephen points them to a prophecy that had come hundreds of years before In verse 48 through 50, he quotes the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He wants them to say, he wants them to see Sanhedrin. Listen, we're even standing in the temple that you think somehow earns acceptance by God because we're, because we're in it, because we've built it. God must be impressed with us because we built the temple. I want you to know, God is well outside of this temple. This temple was a means of grace to us to point us to something else. To think that God's impressed with us because we built it, He's not. Because the heavens are His home and the earth is the footstool. He builds all these things. So Sanhedrin, don't go relying on the land or the temple to think that that's earning favor with God. It's not. And then right in the middle of those two arguments in verses 37 through 43, he picks on the the third sacred cow, if you will, the third false foundation that they're building on, namely their heritage. And to help them see this, he points them straight to Moses. And I love the way he does this. This is so clever. See, Moses would have been the homeboy of the Sanhedrin. He was the guy, you know, if they had 
t-shirts on underneath their paraphernalia. It would have said, Moses is my homeboy. You know, Moses is the guy that was given the law. And the Sanhedrin is all about the law. So Moses, oh yes, let's talk about Moses. Oh, he's our boy. And so he starts to talk to them about Moses. He starts to talk about them, to them about their hero in the faith, the one that had been given the law, the one that they looked up to, the one that they never truly saw in his grace, but they did see in his law. They hailed him. They understood that, or at least in their opinion, that if we have come from the line of people like Abraham and Jacob and Moses, that God must be impressed with us. He gave us the law and we keep it just like Moses did. And Moses is our homeboy. He's our hero. We've always looked up to Moses. And so he points them to Moses and then cleverly in verse 37, quoting Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says, this is the Moses. You know the one, your homeboy. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, namely us, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You know, that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses gave in its entirety says, you know what, yes, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers whom you shall listen to. Moses, their homeboy, had prophesied about the coming of Christ. Just like Abraham, hundreds of years earlier, as he's about to stick the dagger into his son Isaac, and God stops him. And there's a ram caught in a thicket that, 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 Jake, that um, Abraham sacrifices instead of his son Isaac. And it says that on that day, on that hill, Abraham saw the day of the Lord and looked forward to it. He knew one was going to come. And then we get to to Jacob as he's prophesying over his sons. And you think the hero of the story is Joseph. But it's not, it's Judah. And as Jacob goes over Judah and prophesies a blessing, he makes it clear that one day one will come through your line, Judah. He will be a lion. And through him, the scepter will be given and he will rule to the ends of time. And then we get to Moses, who also says, you know what, I agree with Abraham. And I agree with Jacob. One who is going to come is also going to be a prophet. And the Israelites as a nation need to listen to him. They need to bow their knee and listen to him. How clever then of Stephen to say, you know what? You rely on your heritage to think that that makes you special with God. And yet all of the greats in the past pointed us to another. All of our ancestors. They pointed us to one who was going to come. Even your homeboy, Moses, pointed us to another, the prophet to come. And in the closing verses of this section, verses 52, he looks at this Sanhedrin in their eyes and he says, and you know what? In just the same way our forefathers mocked Moses and rejected Moses, you, Sanhedrin, You have rejected the one that Moses prophesied about. You rejected the righteous one. And you betrayed him. And you had him killed. You know, all throughout this speech, Stephen is seeking to care for them. He's not really defending himself. He's seeking to appeal to them. He's seeking to help them see, guys, 
You're trying to stand against Jesus, but Jesus is the only way. You're trying to stand against all these thinkings that your heritage or your temple or your land will be enough, but it will never be enough. Jesus alone is enough. He is the only way. And so this young man from this local church stands up with this formidable crowd in front of him and preaches to them and tells them about Jesus. You would have hoped that this Sanhedrin would have responded in this moment by bowing the knee to the Lord, by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But they don't. Let's read verses 54 to close. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, to really, to really interact, I think, with this closing scene, to really immerse yourself in this closing scene and interact with it genuinely and fully, I think is to experience, if we can see it in our eyes, a whole range of different emotions. If you can actually journey through Dr. Luke's eyes with Stephen as he is dragged forth, as the Sanhedrin rush off the stage, grab him and pull him out of the city and then start rolling up their sleeves and putting their bags with a young man named Saul and start throwing stones at Stephen. If you can see in your mind eye what's going on there and not just perceive this as a cardboard cutout story that you get taught when you're a kid. If you could actually see that individual as a member of our church and us witnessing what is going on. I think it's to experience a whole range of different emotions. For me this week, I've experienced, I think, a number of them. Firstly, I think I've experienced grief this week as I was reading this and soaking myself in this. To think that this young man who's just seeking to win them to Jesus is then responded to so angrily and dragged out the city where they take up stones and ram them into his skull. That's grieving. And the truth is, across our world, there's still places in our world that this still happens today. People still living for Jesus and being mobbed and beaten and sometimes executed. That's grieving. That's grieving to consider that that would take place. 
and still takes place today. This young man is a brother. He's a fellow Christian. He's one of our family. And this really happened to him. I think at different times I've also been inspired. You cannot help but be inspired, don't you think? When you see his bold proclamation, when you see his spirit-filled living, which caused him to stand tall, even in the face of a pending death, you can't help but be motivated. The most we are probably going to get as Christians, if we tell people about Jesus, the most we are likely to get is, look, thanks, but not for me. And yet we're too afraid to do that. And yet this man stood there as a guy from the church to the mighty Sanhedrin and said, it is true. And I want to love you enough to tell you about him. I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired by this man's bold proclamation. I'm inspired by his faith in the Lord. I'm inspired by the fuel in which he had in his body. He's introduced to us a man full of faith on the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith because he's a man of the word. He gives himself to studying the Bible, which causes the promises of God to well up in his heart, which he stands on and believes. And he's full of the Holy Spirit because he applied the message from two weeks ago. He's a man that actually does cry out to God, Lord, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? And God says yes and does. And it causes then this regular guy to stand tall and boldly proclaim the gospel. Are you not inspired by that? Because I am. I want to be like this guy. So often I'm not like this guy, but I want to be like this guy. He's there to inspire us. I mean, church, would we all be living like this guy? We're unlikely to have to die for our faith, but we are likely to have to live for our faith. We've got to be bold. I've experienced then grief, and I've experienced being inspired. You know what I've also experienced? I've also experienced being overwhelmed. And I think not many of us will experience being overwhelmed because our gaze will be on Stephen. But there's another character at the end who I think is overwhelming. Look again at verse 55. He says, But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As he is about to die and give his life as the very first martyr, the Lord gives him a vision. This is a cosmic scene and as he gazes into the heavens, Jesus is standing. Jesus never stands. Everywhere else in scripture, we see Jesus post-ascension seated at the right hand of the Father because he's the king. His work is done. He's been crowned with many crowns. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king of heaven and earth. And so he seats on his throne as that king. But not here. Because here, as he sees one of his brothers about to give his life as a martyr, he stands. 
And he gives Stephen eyes to see him. You know, as I've considered that this week, I've been overwhelmed afresh with the intimacy of the Saviour. He's not uninterested in the persecution and hardships we face. But like with Stephen, as they come our way, he stands to his feet to offer support. But more importantly for Stephen, in great intimacy, he was seeking to help Stephen see, Stephen, I'm with you. And Stephen, you're coming home. And Stephen, I'm waiting for you. What a wonderful thing. Stephen is not stoned alone. He's stoned with the vision of the Savior filling his gaze. You know, this story, even on the face of it, is, I think, an incredible one. But I do just want to close by way of conclusion by looking at two implications, short implications. Because this story isn't just there to invoke our emotions. I think it's there to invoke our actions, our reactions. And so how do we apply this? Part two, the story's implications. Well, first of all, listen, if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, these are the stones that started a tsunami. If you know what comes next in this book, in this glorious book of Acts, you will realize that these are the stones that God used in his sovereignty and in his grace to start a gospel tsunami. In this moment, as Stephen is stoned, the gospel going forward in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth begins a gospel story which is still going on today. For in this very moment, as Stephen is stoned, a great swell against Christianity begins. A great persecution against Christianity starts. Some of the Christians remain. They realize that they also have to reach Jerusalem. But others of them decide that they need to pack their bags with their families and leave Jerusalem. They need to flee Jerusalem. But as they flee, they do not flee the gospel. They keep the gospel. And so as they move out to Judea and Samaria and to other places beyond, they start telling people about Jesus in all these different places. For these are the stones that started a tsunami. These are the stones which God used in his sovereignty to see the gospel break out of Jerusalem in a great way. And my friends, I want to encourage you as Christians, this gospel wave is still moving forward to this day. This gospel wave hasn't stopped. It is still moving forward. And as Christians, God has called us to play our part. Our part in seeing the gospel go forward in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our part here in Sydney. The gospel is still going forward. Aslan is still on the move. The gospel is still powerful today, exactly like it was then. So if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, then jump aboard the gospel wave and play your part. Open your mouths, just like Stephen did. And the power of the gospel, open your mouths and tell people about Jesus. Jump on the wave.
ride the wave. Tell people about Jesus. You know, if you're fearful about doing that, that makes at least two of us. Because it can be fearful, can't it? It can be difficult. We, we hear about Stephen and one of the things you also feel is just guilty because you think, gosh, he stood up in front of all those people. I, I struggle in front of my neighbour. You know, when they just say, no, what did you do this morning? And you think, oh, yeah, no, staff. Oh, you mean church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friends, if you're fearful, I get that. And I just want to remind you then of what we learned a few weeks ago. Stephen is not a guy that is, by character, I think, necessarily courageous and bold. He's just a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He's a regular Joe that gives himself to reading his Bible and then decides to believe the Bible, that God is really with him. And he gets on his knees and prays regularly, Lord, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit because I need boldness to do these things. And God says, yeah, for sure I will. In essence, church, Stephen could be any one of us. The difference sometimes is that Stephen is a man of the word and prayer and we are not. If we want to be bold, we must plug ourselves into the source. We must be a people of God's word and we must cry out to God, Lord, help me with your Holy Spirit because I have not got the guts to do this by myself. But Lord, help me. Just practically speaking in church, As you come into this month of opportunity then, here's two questions for you. As we come into the next month of Sundays where every week we're going to be telling people about Jesus. Number one, who then are you going to reach out to with the gospel? See, this is where it gets real life living. We all get inspired about Stephen and think, yes! And then somebody says, great, who are you going to reach out to? (gasps) No. Here's what I want you to consider this this week then. As you, as we all come into the month of opportunity ahead of us, who then are you going to reach out to with the gospel? And how are you going to do it? Let's get real practical. And I want to encourage you in your life groups this week, spend some time looking at that. Let's not just let this go out there of, oh yeah, I really should do that next year. It sounds really cool. Now let's embrace this season that we've got here. Not to die for the gospel, that won't be needed, just to actually tell people about Jesus. If though you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then I believe this story has an implication for you as well. See, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, first of all, thank you so much for coming. Because to be honest, I'm not sure I would have. And even if I had a niece or nephew get him dedicated, I would have gone... Oh, I think I'm busy that morning. You know, thank you for coming and being a part this morning. This Bible, though, and this speech speaks to you. And I want to encourage you then, my friends, that this speech that Stephen died giving is a speech that can give you life. The speech that cost him his life is a speech, if you believe it, that can give you life. See, your story may be different to that of the Sanhedrin. Your hopes may not be in the temple or the land or your heritage. It's probably different for you. Your hope of God maybe accepting you one day and having maybe being your home may not be, bought, be based on where you live or where you grew up or who your parents were or the land that you live on. It may not be built on that. It may be built on that. 
You may be thinking, well, you know what, I've done some good stuff in my life and I'm sure that'll do it. And my parents, yeah, they were Christians, like we went at Easter and Christmas and stuff and, you know, we believe in God. Good to go. Stephen, if he was here with you, would say, you know what, your good works, where you grew up, what your parents believed, the fact that you went to church every now and again, that's nothing. It's nothing before the Lord. It's not enough. But Jesus' death in your place is enough. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done, not what you've done and where you live and who you are. It's all about where he is and what he has done and who he is. It's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my friends, that's what this entire book is all about. That's what this story is all about. It starts with God making mankind. Knitting us all together as human beings and making us to find our identity and our security and our joy in him. But then in Genesis 3, mankind screws up and decides, oh, it looks pretty good, but I'll give it a miss. I want to live for myself. I want to do my thing. I want to find my joy in other things. And then we read the paper 2,000 years on and we realize this world really sucks. It's really messed up. Where's God? Where's God? We rejected him. That's where God is. We decided, no thanks, we'll sort ourselves out. And because of that, there are grave consequences on our life. We're not able to enjoy in and of ourselves what we were made for. We're not able in and of ourselves to find our identity and our joy and our security in God because he is holy and we are not. He called us to be with him, re-rejected him. And God, in his holiness as judge, cannot then just say, oh, well, look, never mind, come on back. Somebody's got to pay the consequence for our sin. Somebody's got to actually pay the price for what we've done. And 2,000 years ago, in splendor and in grace, he sent someone to do that for us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came from heaven at Christmas to be born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. At the age of 33, he then died on a cross and throughout the whole experience, he was claiming, all you've got to do is put your faith in me because on the cross, I'm experiencing the death which is a consequence of your sin. It's not about land. It's not about temple. It's not about you. It's about whether you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or not. That's what this book is all about, and that was Stephen's point throughout. It's not about all these things. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ alone. He's the only way. It was his message then, and it's still the message today. You know what's crazy about this story? One of the things I love about it is it would actually be a man called Saul who is right here at the end of the story holding the bags and the clothes of those who are stoning Stephen. It's actually Saul who had become a Christian. This one that's sneering as they stone Stephen, saying, oh, I get bigger stones. This is good. He's smiling. He goes on to encounter Jesus Christ and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as his saviour. And in Romans 10 verse 9 then, this young man, having become a Christian, tells us how we can become Christians. How we can be saved. He says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. My friends, temple, land, 
heritage, it's worthless before the Lord. Where you were born, who your parents were, where you go sometimes on a Sunday, that's nothing before the Lord. If you want to be saved, then you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your King, that He's the one you want to live for. And you believe in your heart that He died for you and that He rose again for you. He took on the punishment of your sin in your place. And according to the all of the Bible, you do that, then you'll be saved. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then do that today. If we can help you do that, I'd love to. Come and see me at the end of the meeting. Come and see one of the leaders. Come and speak to the person who brought you. I'd love to pray with you as you walk into Christianity for yourself. Today is the opportunity of life. Stephen gave a speech and died for it that can give you life. Embrace it, my friends, and take it. And if you are a Christian, would we also give our lives for declaring similar speeches? Would we have the privilege of dying, probably not in martyrdom, but one day at a time proclaiming Jesus Christ? And would that be our story? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, we thank you for Stephen. We thank you for our brother who gave his life as a martyr for your glory. Lord, we thank you for how you used this to see the gospel go forward across all the nations, including Australia. But Lord, we thank you that one greater than Stephen exists. And that's you. Jesus, thank you for coming and then dying in our place and offering us life. Thank you that all of these scriptures point to you. In the Old Testament, they point on to you. In the Gospels, they're all about you. And in the letters, they all point back to you. And Lord, for all of us then, would our lives be about you? Lord, I thank you that you can take people who are far from you, who have committed sins that they dare not even talk to another about, and in a moment... Forgive them and give them life. Lord, would all of us in this room then know what it is to walk as Christians? Open our eyes, Lord. And would we all give ourselves then to worshiping you? In Jesus' precious name, amen.